Welcome to episode 30 of Shane Talks. That's right, 30 episodes. This episode is titled, The Party Starts on the 30th Floor. It's a reference to uh, one of the early lines in the first Die Hard film, uh, when John McClane is told that the party is on the 30th floor. We're going to talk about the whole Die Hard franchise tonight, so the party is starting on the 30th floor with the first uh, film. Tonight, uh, we've kind of run dry with Sun King beers. Um, a lot of their special releases they're doing right now, you can't get to go. Uh, they're only doing uh, pours that you can drink um, in in their bars. So we haven't really had any new Sun King beers, even though they've got two or three coming out this week that sound absolutely amazing for Valentine's Day. And then for uh, National Stout Day on the 20th, they've got a, a churro-flavored beer coming out, which I'm really excited to go try. Uh, but... Because of that, tonight we, uh, we're drinking a, a classic uh, for me, something that I drink on a weekly basis. Uh, I am drinking Polliner, and I am drinking Polliner for a couple of reasons tonight. The first reason is two of our villains we're going to talk about tonight come from Germany. Because they come from Germany, I'm going to be drinking a German beer. The other reason I'm talking about uh, Germany and German stuff is because tomorrow my German soccer club, Bayern Munich, uh, they are going to be playing for their sixth trophy in 2020. Now, yes, technically we're in 2021, but because of COVID, a lot of the 2020 German soccer season got pushed uh, very late into the year. Uh, well, most all of European soccer did. And tomorrow is the FIFA Club Championship, which is um, the six clubs that won their uh, countries. Uh, and not even countries, they're like, uh, continents, uh, essentially, because Bayern Munich is representing Europe in this competition, and they are playing against a Mexican team tomorrow who won the CONCACAF Cup, which is the North and South Americas all play each other and then whittle down in a bracket to a single winner. Uh, so tomorrow, Bayern Munich is playing for their sixth trophy. This has only ever been done one other time in the history of European or in the history of world soccer. Uh, and that was back in 2009 when a very good Barcelona team, which had Lionel Messi and a lot of other really good players on it, uh, they pulled this off back in 2009. So we're hoping to be the second club that ever does that. All right, so that's enough about... Uh, Drinking Polliners tonight, my soccer team. I am joined again by Jason Mayer this week, uh, my regular awesome sidekick co-host. Um, and Jason is actually the one responsible for this episode because earlier in this year when we were pitching episodes uh, for this season, um, episode 30, Triple X, was going to be all about the Triple X franchise. And we were going to dive deep into those three films, the two with Vin Diesel, the one with Ice Cube, uh, we were just going to talk about that franchise for as long as we could, um, all three movies of it. But then Jason put up a post, because he was not excited about talking about the Die Hard franchise. And uh, he put up a post, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, he wasn't excited about talking about the Triple X franchise. He put up a post on Facebook about the Die Hard franchise, and as soon as I saw it and, and saw that, uh, you know, people started commenting on it and talking about it, the first thing that came to my mind was, I'm pretty sure that that Christmas party happened on the 30th floor. So since it happens on the 30th floor, that could be our 30th episode, because I have to have little weird tie-ins like that, and uh, talked to Jason, and he said he'd much rather talk about the Die Hard franchise. So here we are today. Thank you, Jason. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, also, I never thought that an episode about those three movies would have made a good episode. 
You have frozen. Okay, you are back. So we're going to go back to the point where you said you're welcome, because as soon as you started talking after you're welcome, you froze up. Copy that. Um, You're welcome. (laughs) I don't know how you ever thought talking about three triple X movies was ever going to make a good episode that people would actually want to listen to. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I feel like half the episodes we do, people don't want to listen to. Oh, no, I pick some pretty ridiculous topics. Well, yeah, but I mean, like, I'd be okay with like a Vin Diesel episode and we talk about triple X and that third movie like that makes sense <laughs> to me and we could even pepper in the second one with that but like yeah a vin diesel episode would be fine i i, I can't mm, no not, <laughs> not that franchise so in your post that you put up uh on the shane talks asking people what their what their personal favorite episode or um uh movies in order was you were you numbered them one to five Wait, and- no, no, no no i didn't say what's your favorite I said, what are the best? Oh, best. And okay. This is where some of those people were filling out things that didn't make any sense. <laughs> people were picking out things and they were like, well, second one was the worst one I ever saw. So uh, <laughs> it's like, no, no, we're, we're not like, no, it should just be best. I wanted your best sure. one to five. You get to name. Well, when, when you put that up, you gave each of the five movies a friends episode title. So why don't you tell everybody what those five titles were? Um, I, you know, I honestly only remember, oh, hey, look, you wrote them down. Thank you for, uh, the one in a building is the first episode. The second episode was the one in an airport. Uh, the third one being the one in New York. The fourth one being the one with the hacker and fifth one being the one in Russia. Now, if I'm looking at this now and I'm going, why didn't I name the fourth one, the one in blank? And I guess you could have done Washington, but like, wasn't it? It took place in like multiple manip- municipalities, right? Yeah, like, like I think I'm pretty sure it started in New York because like the FBI, and unfortunately, I only know this because I watched the fourth one today because it was the one that I hadn't seen the most recent. So I watched the fourth one again today. It starts in New York City because the FBI needs to get to Justin Long's character, but they, oh, yeah. like, they've sent everybody on, on holiday for the 4th of July, so there's nobody available to send. So they're, like, just calling a local cop to do it. And, of course, the local cop is John McClane. So it starts in oh. New York. They oh. do end up getting down to Washington, D.C. Um, but, yeah, well... In Maryland at one point, too. He pro- yeah, yeah, that might be where Kevin Smith's character was, I think. Okay. Um, but yeah, so before we get into like deep diving into the movies, the other thing I want to mention is, have you watched the movies that made us episode on Die Hard? I have. Yeah. Uh, anybody that has Netflix, uh, there's a series on there called the movies that made us, uh, so far they've only got six movies on there. Uh, they've got one season that was four and then they did a, a holiday season, uh, that was elf and the night, uh, or the nightmare before Christmas. But then it's funny because the first four that they released, two of those are Christmas movies because you have Die Hard and Home Alone in that bunch. Uh, if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend watching that for for the Die Hard, if not for the Home Alone one also, because uh, I what they did building an entire house in a school gymnasium is pretty awesome to to see them do that. Yeah. Um, 
But then for Die Hard, there is there's a lot of awesome behind the scenes stuff. Something that I didn't know was the fact that Frank Sinatra legally had the right to accept Die Hard first. Like they were legally obligated to offer him the part because the book that Die Hard is based on is actually a sequel to a book that Frank Sinatra did. Uh, the Detective is the name of the book in the movie that Frank Sinatra did in like the 60s. Frank Sinatra bought the rights to the to the sequel from the author before the author ever even wrote the sequel book because he wanted to do another movie. Uh, so they like legally had to offer Frank Sinatra the, the movie before uh, anybody else. So I thought I had never known that. I thought that was a really cool tidbit. Well, not only that, but like when they had to offer it to him, he was like 60 years yeah. old. But it's like nowadays 60 is a little bit different than, you know, 1980s. Uh, so yeah, so they I, I they they kind of go into that story quite a bit, and I was I was very interested because that was all stuff that I never knew about the first Die Hard. Yep. So we're gonna start with the with the original, uh, the the best Die Hard there is, uh, and that is the one that is the uh, uh, what did you call it? The one in a building. In a building. Yep. Uh, so it's the John McClane as the fish out of water character because he is a New York cop who is going out to Los Angeles to see his estranged wife and their children. Uh, we got Bruce Willis. This was Alan- Go ahead. Did you say for Christmas or at Christmas? Or at, yeah, at Christmas time. I don't think I said that. But it's at Christmas time. Um, we, it's obviously starring Bruce Willis. It was Alan Rickman's first film that he ever did. And um, they had to convince him to do it. Yeah. Yeah, like they, they kept uh, coming back to him because, and he kept turning them down. Mm-hmm. He was so. he was doing a Broadway show at the time and just didn't have any interest in converting into act or like theater or stage. He didn't have any interest in converting into film acting from the stage. Uh, we got Reginald Vell Johnson, and this was a year before Family Matters came out. So when I was reading trivia and stuff, I guess Reginald Vell Johnson always said that he believed his role in this movie is what got him the Carl Winslow part. Uh, so I think that's pretty funny because as a kid, obviously I saw Family Matters before I saw this movie. I probably didn't see this movie till, you know, ninety two, ninety three, somewhere when I'm like twelve or thirteen. Yeah, I know. I, I was. I'm so lucky. Yeah. Like the fact that I got to see this in a movie theater, like when you were when five seven. or eight, seven, yeah, seven or eight, yeah. It was before, yeah, because it wasn't. I don't think it was near Christmas time. I want to say it was the summer release. It was. Uh, it was. It was late July, I believe. Okay. Like yeah. July 25th, I think it was its release date. Yep. And um, yeah, I, I saw it at the movie theater on post. Oh, on nice. The one where your uh, dad ran the theater for how many years? Uh, dad and, and my brother Dave worked there for, oh, uh, they closed in like 94. So I want to say it's seven years, six or seven years that nice. my, my dad worked there. And then David worked there, I want to say like four or five years or awesome. something. And then you worked there off the clock as a little mayor boy learning how to thread projectors. and. Sweep. I didn't get to thread projectors. I was never allowed to do that. Oh, because it was real to real there. We had to, we had to hand, they had to inspect everything because they were a second run theater being a, um, being a movie theater on the army base. Mm-hmm. They were a second run theater. So they never got the nice prints. They got the leftover prints. And so my dad actually, my dad taught me how to, um, they had, uh, spindle on each side and mm-hmm. you would load up an entire you'd put a full reel on this side and then you uh and then you'd put an empty reel over here and then you would have to thread it over 
and then you would uh there was a hand crank on this one. Oh wow. And, was, and then you put on gloves, you put on like the film handling gloves, the white gloves, and then you would hold the film just gently and you would sit there and hand crank. Ooh. And you would feel and then you were feeling for any imperfections inside the film. So like dad would come across parts where like uh like I that's when I first ever touched film, that's when I first spliced film. Um so like my dad would get to a point where he felt like there were imperfections and he'd have to stop cranking and then you'd back it up a little bit and you'd get and you'd find it and you'd have to look at it and determine whether or not it could go the, through the projector the way oh, that wow. it was, the shape that was in. And so, yeah, so like, and then if it wasn't, you had to cut the frames out and you had to make sure you were cutting, you know, only four frames out so mm-hmm. that you were paying. And um, for anybody who doesn't know 35 millimeter film, um, uh has is four frames or four sprocket holes per frame each frame is 1 24th of a second and uh so yeah like um and the frame is like literally the box in which an image appears and uh with older projectors you had a shutter that would flash while that line was going through um through the through the lens, there was a um, a shutter that would go at the exact same time as that line, so that that line wouldn't show up on your movie screen while you were showing it, um, as long as everything was timed correctly. Um, so yeah, yeah, you would just sit there and he would fill imperfections, cut out certain sections if he had to, uh, and then yeah, and you literally had to no matter when a film showed up and a lot of times he would do that while he was also running a movie for like, so like he might be inspecting Friday's movie while he's showing a movie on Tuesday night or something. Wow. So, and, uh, and that was the real, to real system also. So you actually had to go to a projector every 18 to 20 minutes and look for the cigarette burn. If Shane could do it, it would be right up here. (laughs) And, uh, but yeah, the cigarette burn up in the corner, and then he would have to press a button on the second projector that would turn that one on and start going while the first projector turned off and it would like turn off this projector while this one was coming back on and then vice versa for every real change. So, I can't li- I can't lie. I'm really happy. I never had to deal with that system. Like, you know, I, I think you're right, but I wish that I could have done it at least once. That would have been cool. But yeah, like, like I, just the I, amount run of, a theater. Yeah. The, the amount of things that could have gone wrong at that point. Like I'm, I'm glad I came in the next generation, the platter system and everything was all good. Well, yeah. But if you think about it, right, like the platter system sounds great, mm-hmm. but most of the time when you got scratches or something, it was because you threaded it wrong through sure. the platter system. It wasn't because you I never threaded, threaded it wrong. Sure. Never. I never caused the scratch. Yeah. Never. But like I, I can't imagine how many times we were at uh, Georgetown just sitting there going, "Okay, keep turning it." I don't count it. Georgetown because that wasn't. First of all, I wasn't a projectionist there. But uh, when you give, you were when, always the projectionist. Well, when 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 it's two thousand and uh, what was it two thousand and eight, and you give me equipment from nineteen seventy five, like <laughs> how do you how do you expect me to run a building with thirty five year old plus equipment? Like yeah. That, I don't count anything that happened at Georgetown. Georgetown. I love the fact that you guys had that five-tier platter system. Yeah, that was the first time I'd ever seen that. I'd never seen one until you showed it to me when we were there. So, yeah, like, that was the, that was interesting. 
Uh, all right, we, we got off topic. Let's get back to Die Hard real quick. We were going through the cast. Reginald Lavelle Johnson, Paul Gleason is in it. Uh, William Atherton plays a, a really annoying uh, TV reporter. Uh, and then a ballet dancer, Alexander Gudinov. Uh, this was his first and possibly only ever acting role that I know of. Gotcha. Yeah. Carl, right? Carl, yeah. Yep. Yep, yep. Um, uh, this first film was directed by John McTiernan. Uh, who had just come off Predator? Yep. Why? Why are you shaking your head like that? I, 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 I don't get it, man. Like he made Predator, follows it up with Die Hard. Then did you, the Hunt for Red October. The Hunt for Red October. Great movie. Last Action Hero. Great Die Hard movie. with Vengeance. Time. Thomas Crown Affair and Basic. And then, like, literally nothing since then. Uh, we will get to that when we start talking about Die Hard 3. We'll address why he hasn't made anything since Basic. Okay. I looked it up because I, I was very confused by it also. Because Well, and Basic came out in 2004, but they obviously would have filmed it in 2003, maybe even 2002, depending on the production or whatever. Um, but yeah, things kind of got crazy in his life, and, and we'll, we'll discuss that. I included that because he came back and directed Die Hard 3, uh, so I included that in the notes for Die Hard 3. Uh, okay. so the plot for so yeah, so like you said, John McTiernan did a lot of movies I really love. I love Predator, I love this movie, I love The Hunt for Red October. I still geek out over Last Action Hero. I know it's not a good movie, but it's that fun, magical, like movies come to life, get sucked into the movies thing. Um Die Hard with a Vengeance is my second favorite Die Hard movie. Thomas Crown Affair was decent, and then Basic is one of those like Rashomon type movies that I love. Dude, I don't know what it was. And people still clown on the Thomas Crown Affair. And that's fine if you want to clown on it, right? But, like, when I first saw that, like, I always thought Rene Russo was hot. Sure. But, then like, that movie, wow. Sure. Like, just was not expecting her to be so sexy, like, in that movie. Like, And I, I, I don't dislike it, but it's one of those ones that I... I I remember liking it a lot when, when it came out in 99, because obviously it's a 99 movie, so I have to love it, right? But, like, I've gone back and watched it, like, twice or maybe three times since then, and it just, I, I think I built it up too much that I liked it in 99, because when I go back and watch it, I'm like, I mean, it's okay, but, like, there's really nothing great about the movie. Not only that, but, like, everybody was on their high for Pierce Bronson at this point in yeah, time. Yeah, he was still James Bond, and... So... Yeah, so um, John McTiernan, we'll, we'll circle back to him in two movies. Uh, like I said, this is the fish out of water story where John McClane is a New York cop who is out in Los Angeles. So he's out of his element. He doesn't have the regular resources that he would have if he was in New York City. Um, German terrorists led by Alan Rickman come in and hijack this party. And he's got Hans Gruber, uh, probably one of the best action villains ever. Um and, and he is such a good villain because of the fact that he has such an elaborate plot for what he's going to do. He he's he takes all these people hostage. He takes them up onto the roof. He has the roof wired with C4. Um, he's he's told the police that he wants you know helicopters to come and pick up all the hostages and pick up all the terrorists uh, to fly them away. And his plan is to blow up the roof, but none of the terrorists will actually be there. They're all down in the vault hijacking all the bare bonds or whatever it was uh, from the vault. Uh, and he has one of the greatest lines ever. 
if you steal or uh, what is it? If you steal six hundred dollars, you can get away with it. But if you steal six hundred thousand, they will find you unless they already think you're dead. So he was literally trying to trying to make it look like they all blew up in this explosion on the roof, so that he could just quietly sneak away with the money. Um, uh, he in the middle of the movie, he demands the release of a bunch of like terrorists uh, and terrorist organization people that are in, imprisoned as just kind of a um, a red herring. Uh, to make it look like he's like actually caring about these people when he really doesn't. It's just more of the story that he's trying to, you know, be this big bad terrorist. And it was literally all about the money. What uh, what's your favorite scene in the movie? Man, there's so many good ones. There's right? a lot of good stuff. I think it probably my favorite overall though is I mean like it's definitely when he he uh when he finally realizes where he has to go to get Holly at the okay. end. Okay. Of like just that whole sequence at the very end and knowing what his ammunition situation is and him being crafty and stuff like that is yeah, definitely my favorite part of the movie. Uh, I want to say my favorite part is the scene where he actually meets Hans Gruber when they're up near the roof and they've got that dialogue between them where uh, Hans Gruber does his American accent, uh, makes him try to think that he's one of the party goers and that he snuck away. And the weird thing is, uh, there is a deleted scene that actually explains how John McClane knows that he's one of the terrorists. Um, yep. Because he, apparently when, he's already killed the ho-ho-ho guy at this point, and apparently he like looked at his watch. All and, of the watches, and were the all same. of all of the watches were a German brand watch, and they were all the exact same. So when he lights Hans's cigarette, he notices that Hans is wearing that same watch, um, and that's one of those things that when I was a lot younger, it never made sense. Like I was always like, "How did he know? How is he so smart?" Dude, I mean, and it's totally a Scooby Doo moment, right? Like, because yeah. you ever watch Scooby Doo, you realize like you never got all the pieces to the puzzle to figure out the actual bad guy yep. ever. They always acted like they showed you stuff when they didn't. Um, but like, I guess, you know, that is kind of a, one of those moments where you're like, what the hell, how did he figure it out? But then you can also be like, he is a detective for a living. Sure. So, like, and Which that's probably what the, the watch makes sense. Well, yeah, absolutely. But it's also one of those things where you're like, like if you're uh, the film executive or something, you might be like, <laughs> like, People are just going to believe that he would know, sure. like, figure this out. Well, and the weird thing was, was like, that scene is edited in a very odd way that as a kid made me think I wasn't catching something. Because uh, John asks him what his name is, and then it cuts to the directory with all the names on it. It pans down Clay. and then, like, zooms in on Bill Clay, or William Clay, or whatever, and then uh, Alan Rickman says his name is Bill Clay. So I'm just like, how... Like it made me think that that was the hint that I was supposed to get as an audience member that like this is how he knows that he's lying and like the fact that he got Bill from William like I I never was able to figure that out and then I I can't remember if I read about it or like saw some saw a video about it that explained the watch thing and I was like well that's weird because that's obviously not there and and how hard like. I I would like to see why they decided to go against it. Yeah. Because they couldn't have added much more time. And it worse comes to worse when he's ripping off um, the ho, ho, ho guy. Yeah. Can't I can't remember his name. 
but Carl's brother, when he's ripping yep. him off and taking his shoes and his cigarettes and all mm-hmm. that other stuff, you would have thought that maybe he could have, they could have just shown you, like, maybe he picked up the watch and, like, looked at the time or sure. something, uh, like, while it was still attached to the guy, or maybe he took it off and put it in his pocket, whatever the case may be, you think that they would have just been able to have been, like, but maybe they maybe they got to the end and they figured out they never actually filmed that with the other guy. That's I don't know. Possible. I don't but know. Yeah, like, I'd be I mean, interested to find that out. You're literally talking about 15 seconds of added, like five seconds yeah. of him looking at the watch, five seconds of of the camera panning in on the watch while he's lighting the cigarette for for Alan Rickman. Like, there's no way 10 seconds of additional screen time like would have made the movie too long. But yeah. yeah, that always bothered me about about the movie, even though it's in my favorite scene uh, of just them in their dialogue talking. That and like, dude, how can you not? You can't go wrong with that rooftop sequence. Like, oh yeah, that's really good too. When, when he when he when um when he gets shot at and he has to do the swing by the yep. uh, fire hose, like no fucking shit, lady. Does it sound like I'm ordering a pizza? So like that the 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 whole like and you know it's literally oh. iconic. The 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 shot of him jumping up and the thing exploding right behind him yep. and, and it's just you know that which, forever will be stuck in my brain. Which, according to the the movies that made us, Bruce Willis did that shot himself. Yeah, but I doubt that was really on the rooftop. No, no, the, no, no. It was it was on a soundstage. Yeah, like they they show you the soundstage of, of, but apparently he just decided to do it so that they would have like because I mean that's a shot of him jumping off you know the rooftop. Uh, yeah. But yeah, apparently he just decided to do it. And speaking of rooftop scene, or well, it's not really a rooftop scene, but stunts. Uh, Alan Rickman and his fall at the end when they unclasp his watch and, and he goes falling. Apparently the stunt guy, that was actually Alan Rickman, and it was like a two-story fall into like a giant, you know, beanbag thing. Uh, but apparently the stunt guy told Alan Rickman, okay, well, I'm going to count to three and then I'm going to unhook this watch. He went one and just unhooked it. So that look of terror on Hans Gruber's face was because Alan Rickman was not ready to fall at that. Like he had not prepared himself to fall at that moment. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Uh, anything else you want to touch on what you and I agree is the best Die Hard film? Is there anything well, else? Not only the best Die Hard film, it's literally probably the best action film of all time. As far as like non-science fiction. Sure. Plausible to actual real life happenings. This is literally the best action movie of all time. Sure. So um, there's there's multiples that can be up there. Uh, I think John Wick is probably in my top three or top four. Sure. Uh, or top five at least. Uh, but like, yeah, like this is definitely a, the number one. So. It is a it is a really amazing film. So let's move on to the sequel. Which was literally a copy and paste and change a couple of things. They moved it to DC. They moved it to Washington, DC. And they did that. They did that so that they could make um, their entire cast fish out of waters. Because now you've still got New York cop John McClane at Christmas time again, exactly a year later, (sighs) in Washington, DC. Meeting up with his wife from Los Angeles, who's on a flight to Washington, D.C., which that flight also happens to have William Atherton's annoying TV reporter. Um, man, I can't remember. I almost, I, 
the reporter's name was on the tip of my tongue, and I just forgot it. It's like Roger Thornburg or something. I think you're right. Um, Keep talking. But so now both of them happen to be on the same plane that's flying to Washington, D.C. that gets, you know, stuck in a holding pattern because the terrorists shut down the entire D.C. airport. So they turn off all the lights so that no airplane can land and they all just have to circle around. Um, Thornburg. It doesn't give me a first name on the IMDb. Okay, but Thornburg. Okay, cool. Um, So we've got Bruce Willis back. This time our villain is William Sadler who is kind of essentially a precursor to uh, the villain in The Rock. They, I mean, they have different reasons for doing it, but they're both military guys. What's up? It's Richard or Dick Thornburg. Dick, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, so William Sadler plays a, uh, uh, what would this have been? This would have been the year or two before he played Death in the Bill and Ted movies. Um, but he plays a, you know, an army colonel who feels like he's been wronged by his military and he's involved with this drug smuggling drug lord from South America somewhere. Um, I don't really remember a whole lot of his backstory, to be honest, or how he got hooked up with this guy or why he's trying to free him or anything like that. Do you remember it all? I, 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 what I remember about it is... I don't remember anything else besides what you've already pointed out. Yeah, so, like, the drug lord is being flown into Washington, D.C., but he's being flown in so that he can be turned over because he's being extradited from his country so that he can face charges for apparently all this drug smuggling stuff that he was involved in. And for some reason, Colonel Stewart has decided that he needs to break him out and free him. Well, no, I think he made a... a, I think he was in that country. Okay, okay as a part of the United States to go after him or whatever, or under black ops cover or whatever, and ended up striking a deal with him and being friends with him. And then that's why he does what he does. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It, it, It was kind of a lame plot. And then their big twist that they threw into this movie. Oh, I just realized I had notes at the very top of this episode that uh, there's a lot of spoilers for every Die Hard movie involved in this episode. If you haven't figured that out yet, uh, we are literally going to spoil every twist and turn of every single one of them. So if you haven't seen them, sorry. Uh, Sorry I didn't put this at the beginning of the episode like I meant to. Uh, But yeah. So, if you've seen the Die Hard movies and you're listening to Shane and I talk, you deserve to be spoiled. That that's a fact. Plus, this movie came out, you know, 30 years ago. Yep. There needs to be some moratorium. Like we've talked about the Sixth Sense on here, and like, I'm sorry if you haven't seen the Sixth Sense by now, and you're not a 12 year old girl. Like, there's no reason for you to not have seen it. Um. But anyway, like, and and the other thing that really annoyed me with this movie is they went so far to rehash the first movie that he has to call Al Al Powell back in Los Angeles and have a phone conversation with him for absolutely no reason. Like Like, literally just to give, just to give give Reginald Bill Johnson some screen time. Maybe he was on contract for it or something. Maybe, but like at that point, why don't you just put him on the airplane also and let him be up there with Holly and and the, and and Dick. Like, like, why not? Just put put all of John McClane. Like, just, just have them all on there. Put Jay Courtney on that airplane, too, while you're at it. Like, just just pull a, pull a uh, Lucas and just 
put him and Mary Elizabeth Winston on that airplane. Like, who cares how old they are? Like, yeah, that, that, it was just this, I mean, they even had two years. So it's not even like they fast track rushed it and did it all in a year. Like this movie came out two years later. Like you had time to. Directed by? Uh, oh yeah. Directed by Rennie Harlan. Who's actually a really good action director, in my opinion. But the only thing Rennie Harlan had directed before this movie was A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Which I love that movie. Do you really? As far as... And we should do an episode on Nightmare. Maybe in October or something. But like... Um, um, What's 4? 3 is Dream Warriors. I remember that one. What is 4? 4 was... Oh, Dream... I can't remember what the fourth one was. It's the one where the girl ends up like all of her friends give her like she's in high school and she's getting in. She Freddie's going after her and her friends. And um, is that the one where like they have like a slumber party and like they all go to sleep at the same time or something? No, Dream. Uh, yeah, or is that Dream Warriors? No, no, no. I think you're right. I think that Nightmare Four was the dream master that's what it was so it was like one girl who all of her friends going to sleep to like gives sleep, her the power to fight and Freddy. they end up like somehow melting their dream, dream power yeah into her and yeah she and she becomes a dream master or whatever and yeah and she uses all of their powers to fight Freddy. that's and right. uh, I, I, I i won't say i okay love might be a strong term because <laughs> yeah. like I don't know if I love any of them except for the first one anyway. Sure, um, I like and... the third one a lot. I didn't care for the second one, but Dream Warrior, I, I really enjoyed Heather Langenkamp being in it and like you know helping the kids figure out how to fight Freddy. I like one, three, four, six is Freddy's dead. I think. Yeah, sounds right. Because seven's a new nightmare, which I do like. Seven. I like seven. And one, three, and seven. Wes Craven wrote all th- all of those. He nice. didn't direct number three, but he wrote it. So it was one, three, seven. He wrote, and the only one that I liked that he didn't have any hand in was four. Was four nice? So, so. Uh, well, and after Die Hard, he went on to direct Cliffhanger, which is a cheesy Stallone action movie, but it's still funnish. Uh, a Long Kiss Goodnight, which is one of my favorite action movies, is is in my top ten at least. Like I think it's Mary, a very he, well done he was movie. Married to Gina Davis at that point. Yep. Uh, and then Deep Blue Sea, which... Oh, wait. He also did Cutthroat Island. Okay, good. And that was Gina Davis as well, right? Was she, nope. Yep. Being a pirate. Yeah. Uh, I, I did not end up uh, remembering liking that movie very much. I think I've I only like, ever seen it's it once. Silly. It's not great. Um, uh, what's Who's the Frank... Oh, God. Who's the guy who played Skeletor? Frank Langala? Yeah, he's in it as like her bad uncle. Uh, she's the she's the captain of a ship, and you know, at that point in time, Gina Davis was hot. So uh, that's a fact. Uh, while I'm pouring this beer, why don't you talk about the three awesome henchmen that we had in this movie? Robert Patrick. You. Um, I don't know what uh, I don't know what you consider awesome. So like. Um, <laughs> Where where is this in your note? Uh, John Leguizamo. I forgot he was yes. one of them. Yep, yep. John and Leguizamo. Then, and then you have Mark Boone Jr. Yes. He the one who gets stuck in the eye with the ice pick. I believe so. That sounds okay. right. 
Um, uh, and you know who Marvoon Jr. is, right? Sons of Anarchy? He's, he's, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on his, he's, he was also in Memento. He's got the long, like, scraggly hair. Um, I don't know who this is. You do. You know 100% who it is. He was the one that ended up doing the books for the strip uh, club, or for, um, oh my god. He did Die Hard 2? Yes. He, he was also the guy in Memento that was, like, messing with... He was no, the no. the hotel or motel owner in in Memento. No, no, no. I got you on everything else. Yep. I don't remember him in this movie. Well, it's because he's got like fourteen seconds of screen time. Like uh, Robert Patrick is literally in there for thirty seconds. John Leguizamo doesn't last very long. Like it was just I, when I was looking through the cast list, I was just like, wow, those are three really big name people who were all in like one scene and get killed. Yeah. Um... I don't remember him in this movie. What was his character's name in Sons of Anarchy? Oh, uh, that I just had. Sons of Anarchy. Robert Munson. Bobby. Bobby. There we go. Bobby. Bobby. Yep. Got it. Sorry. That was going to drive me crazy if I didn't, if he didn't remind me what his name was. Um, so this one, a little more high-tech than the... Well, I mean, they still did a lot of tech stuff. There was a lot of hacking involved in the first movie, but this time they hacked into the entire uh, Dulles International Airport uh, air traffic grid. Um, apparently, it's a, it's a magical system that you can just tell planes that sea level is at a different level, so they crash into the, into the uh, tarmac which I, I don't think is actually a thing that can happen. I'm pretty sure uh, the onboard computers of an airplane tell it how far it is off of the ground. I got nothing. Uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't confirm nor deny that fact. I, I, I just also had, like, Dennis France and Fred Thompson. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, like, just had all these people in this movie. I seriously don't remember Leguizamo in this either. That's really weird. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's in the same scene as, as Robert Patrick, where they, like, literally turn their guns on McLean and just start shooting, and then he kills them all. Yeah. Well, it's been a while. Yeah, and, I mean, it's... It's... it's, it's they had two years, uh, and all boy. they... What's that? Uh, your boy, security boy, from uh, O'Brien. Oh, from yeah, yeah, yeah. Sp- he's, yep, uh, Cole Meany. Pilot. Yeah, he's probably, he's pilot. a pilot on the plane. You, uh, yeah. I mean, it had a, a fairly interesting cast of people that probably were bigger than their bit parts that they had in this movie. But I mean, maybe it was a decent paycheck. I don't know. So yeah, uh, uh, this is a really disappointing movie for me. Um, Dude, it's it's, it's seven point two on the IMDb. Does it really? What does Die Hard have on the IMDb? 8.9. Uh, let me pull it up. No, it's the IMDb. 8.4. <laughs> I like that you went to... Is that an 8.2? Ooh, even lower than I thought. That's yeah, See, Dyer is much better than an 8.2. Um, uh, I mean, it's definitely better than, like... Yeah. Yeah. Last um, Boy Scout scores lower than Die Hard 2. What does? Last Boy Scout. Oh, that's terrible. 
Yeah. Lost Boy Scout is awesome. I mean, and, and truth be told, like, the climax of this movie is absolutely terrible. John McClane gets in the fight on the wing of an airplane while it's in motion, like, chucks a guy into a uh, into an sure. engine turbine. <laughs> then he ends up getting knocked off of the wing by Colonel Stewart, uh, and then at some point during this fight, McClane had, had opened the fuel cell or something, so the yeah, McClane he, was he dripping the gas. Emergency, he, he opened the emergency uh, gas. Gas thing. Please. So when he gets knocked off the plane, he pulls out his beautiful Zippo lighter, yippee-ki-yay motherfuckers them, and drops his lighter onto the gasoline to then blow up the airplane. Hell yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So garbage. But uh, it's a good thing he blew up the plane, because the explosion from blowing up the plane left a nice fire trail for all the airplanes to learn how to land. <laughs> I I am just not a fan of this movie. There's not much in this movie. The, the, uh, the big twist being when uh, John Amos and his special forces show up, you think that they're there to fight the terrorists, but then you learn about the like red versus blue tape on their on their uh, magazines that let you know if they have blanks or real bullets in them, uh, and that when McLean learns that, it leads to my favorite scene where he confronts Dennis Franz with the with the machine gun and starts shooting, and then he realizes that they're blanks. Uh, little over dramatic, but I guess that's why I like it for the movie. My favorite part is that he does that, and all these cops who have guns on their hip don't even shoot. Like, yep. Because if somebody did that in a police station, in an airport, <laughs> just any time, anywhere, if you had gun, multiple people with guns on their hip that are loaded and ready to go, and somebody pulls out, I don't care if it's an if they're blanks or not, and start shooting at your captain or whatever. Yeah, there's no way in hell they don't pull their guns and shoot as as quickly as possible. Thank God that they all knew that was John McClane. The, the bullets would have just bounced off of him. <laughs> uh, but yes, yeah, so it was a really disappointing sequel in my opinion. Like, I don't hate it, but I don't like it, and that's why it falls in the middle for me of the five movies. Because uh, uh, it's what's that? We'll get to it. Yeah, we'll we'll get we'll get there. Um, all right, so we're then going to go to 1995. Uh, they took five years off after that, thank God, to actually come up with an idea and a script and a plot that, that I find much more plausible and enjoyable. Um, 95 was also Bad Boys, correct, or was Bad Boys 96? No, Bad Boys was 95. 94. 94, okay. So was we, it 93? Oh, I don't think it was 93. I want to say it's 95. Uh, I know we were in high school. Look it up, look it up. Bad boys, bad boys, 95. 95. So around that time, you've got the the buddy cop thing with comedy becoming a thing. Like, obviously, that script has probably been around Hollywood, and then they probably had the idea that we've essentially got a buddy cop movie here. We need to go along the way. I mean, Lethal Weapon, a couple of those had come out, and those were definitely buddy cop movies. So when they decided for the plot for this one... Definitely probably went with, like, we need to add some comedy to the action because that's what people want. What's that face all about? Just yawning. All right, gotcha. Uh, So Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, and Jeremy Irons are our three, like, main characters we've got in this. Um, And Aldous Hodge from Leverage and the Invisible Man 
uh, plays one of Zeus's uh, nephews in the movie, which I think is awesome. Don't recognize him, but I mean, I, like, I, I recognize which one of the two he is, but like, I wouldn't have recognized him and looked at him and been like, "That's Aldous Hodge." Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's a dude that I have loved his career. Uh, really, like I, I learned about him when he was on Leverage, and I've, I've followed all the movies that he's done since then. And really think he's an amazing actor. Loved him in Straight Outta Compton. I thought he was awesome in there. Um, just a, a really good actor who actually comes back in a different role in the fifth Die Hard movie. So I don't know who likes him at 20th Century Fox, but he, he definitely got to come back. He should have been the same character. Wouldn't that would have been awesome. Uh, so Samuel L. Jackson plays Zeus, a uh, really fun character. And like I said, they went with the buddy cop aspect for this, which I enjoy and I like. And then Jeremy Irons comes in as Simon Gruber, Hans Gruber's brother. And I think this is why I like the movie. No, not because it's the two German bad guys, but that kind of helps. But Simon Gruber, I enjoy the fact that they connect it back to the first movie. Uh, you've got Simon Gruber who creates all these riddles and puzzles and things that he makes John McClane do. He gets the whole NYPD involved in like trying to figure out these puzzles and all these things. Then he takes it another step when he admits that he has a bomb in a school, which turns out to be a ruse. Like it's just to get all of the police to go to the like what is it, 160 schools or something that are on the island. Um, so he, he, it's a ruse to get all of the cops to be involved in searching schools uh, so that he can just literally go rob a bank like his brother was going to do. Like, first two-thirds-ish of the movie, they have you building up thinking that this is all a revenge plot and him trying to get back in McLean, and it's all just um, a diversion so that he can go, you know, rob uh, the New York Stock Exchange. Is that what it was? Uh, I want to say, it would, no, it was like no. a... It was the Federal gold. Reserve, yeah. yeah like the Federal yeah. Reserve or something. Um, so I enjoy that because I like the fact that that is apparently just how the Gruber family works. They create really big ruses to make everybody think one thing while they actually have another plan. Um, but even his ruse, I enjoy for the fact that it, it he probably still got enjoyment out of going after the guy that killed his brother. So I really like the Simon Phoenix character in this movie. I consider this to be a much more... What's that? Hans Gruber? No, I said Simon Gruber. Simon Phoenix? Oh, shit. (laughs) My fault. Simon Gruber. Uh, I do like Simon Phoenix also, though. I can see where the Freudian slip happened. Who doesn't like Simon Um, I consider this a much more original plot than the the sequel, so I feel like they took their time to actually develop something, um, doing all of the riddles and puzzles that Simon uh, Gruber was giving them to do throughout the movie, how he ends up forcing them to work together, like when he... When he sees uh, Zeus save him in Harlem, he just decides that he's going to make them work together. And it's probably just to make John McClane's life a living hell while he's going through it. Um, what is your favorite scene from this movie? Uh, the opening scene. Uh, the, when the, he has to wear the sandwich board in the oh, middle yeah. of the okay. uh, like, yeah. It's one of those moments where you're just like... It it literally <laughs> it just it's such a great like moment of uh like you're you're just not expecting it sure. right like, if you've never seen the movie and you turn it on and you see what's happening and they're like you have to do this 
He's asking for you by name. You got to go and stand right here. And then he steps outside and he's literally wearing that sandwich board. And because the entire time inside that inside that police truck, you have no idea like what that sandwich board says or what, he, what he's actually being forced to do. That yeah. scene plays really different once you know like what what's coming next. Like the dialogue that his cop buddies have with him are it's it's very dark. It's it's like we hope you survive this and when you watch it the first time you're like, What are they talking? Like what's going on? And they're like nope. your second viewing, you're like, No, they're legit worried for him and scared for his life. Uh, as they should be. Um that's a scene that I don't know if you could pull off now like might be able to because of the be way it was executed and sure like with with samuel l stepping in and stuff like that i think he might be able to get away with that today i don't know for a fact but well and like that was i mean that, that's some amazing dialogue too where john mcclain's like you know don't worry about me and he's like i'm not worried about you i'm worried about a white dude getting shot in harlem because you get shot today 20 more cops show up here tomorrow like it, it makes sense for his character why he's like trying to save him. It has nothing to do with him wanting to actually save the guy. It's the yeah. fact that it's a white dude. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I will say that the the third act is pretty ridiculous in this one. Like they they get away with it. They get to like the Canadian border. I don't even remember what tips him off that that's where they're going. Oh. Right. But like, yeah, I can't I can't remember what tips him off. Um, yeah, but they end up at the Canadian border, and then there's like some pretty ridiculous over the top fight scenes that go on there. And I mean, it is what it is. I, I forgive the end of it because I enjoyed the execution of the first two thirds of the movie. Nope. Absolutely. Uh, so, and you and I agree that it went movie number one, uh, movie number three, and then movie number two. So we've talked about the best, the second best, and the third best, which means the rest of this episode is going to be talking about a lot of shit. Yeah, but I mean, we don't have to spend forever on it either. <laughs> oh, well, so, before we move on, let's jump back for a second. I told you that we would address the fact that this third movie was also directed by John McTiernan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So John McTiernan in 2002 did the remake of Rollerball, which yep. was a really bad garbage movie. But so bad night vision scenes yeah and like a seven minute night vision scene the movie was so bad that uh apparently john mctiernan and one of the producers got in lots of fights over it apparently what we got for the rollerball movie was not the movie john mctiernan was trying to make so during post-production or after the movie came out john mctiernan hired a private investigator to bug this producer's house he was apparently trying to get information about this producer lying to John McTiernan and lying to the studio executives and basically well not not really to blackmail him but to show that like neither one like uh, the communication between them between the studio and John McTiernan was going through this guy and that he was sabotaging the entire movie. He was telling the studio one thing, telling John McTiernan another thing, like funneling money. 
basically railroading the production, and that's why it turned out to be as bad as it was. He was apparently lying to the studio about certain aspects of the movie and blaming it on McTiernan, or like telling McTiernan that the studio wouldn't let him do certain things that they that he'd never even talked to the studio about. So McTiernan hired this private investigator to bug this guy's house. How he did it, no idea. But um, apparently, McTiernan ended up getting some recordings and tried to use them to his benefit. And somehow, this ended up getting uh, to the FBI. So around 2004, like two years after Rollerball came out, he started getting questioned by the FBI. Um, apparently, this... Uh, the private investigator, like, rolled over on him and, like, said, this is who hired me, this is what I did, this is what I gave him, and all this stuff. But John McTiernan kept denying it. So he eventually ended up getting uh, 12 months in, in prison for lying to the FBI. It took nine years for him to get convicted of this because different judges kept throwing things out or saying that certain things weren't admissible, and so they'd have to retry him in a different court. And so he didn't actually end up serving any of this time until, like, 2014. So it took, like, nine to ten years of litigation going through multiple different courts. While he was in his... Uh, of his 365 days he was supposed to do, he only did 328 of them, and then he did the last, like, 40-some days uh, on house arrest, which, at that point, like... What does it matter? Like, what do these last 40 days mean? Like, whatever. While while he was incarcerated for those 328 days, he wrote a sequel to the Thomas Crown Affair called, like, Thomas Crown and the Lioness or something like that, which okay. he thought he was going to make into a movie, but literally, yeah, I mean, he was released at the end of 2014 from, from jail. Hasn't done anything in seven years now, or six years and plus now. Mm. Um... I don't know if Hollywood won't touch him. I don't know. Come I, on, I know. Netflix. Come on, Netflix. <laughs> um, I know he filed for bankruptcy while he was in prison, or maybe even before he went to prison. At some point during this fiasco, he filed for bankruptcy. Um, he lost his, his like mansion ranch that he had because uh, he had no money. So, yeah, John McTiernan went on like a wild and crazy ride, decided to – lie about something like i don't know i don't know if it would have been better to tell the fbi yeah i did it and just admit to it or if it was better for him to do the year in jail for lying i don't know which which is harsher but uh for some reason he has not made any movies well since 2004 when he did basic but nobody's gonna want to work with him if they if he's got people that record record things yeah uh, so yeah, so that was the wild and crazy ride that I read about John McTiernan this afternoon. It's absolutely crazy. Um, live free or die hard. Well, how many years did they go? 95 to 07? They went 12 more years before they tried to do another sequel. I don't know whose crazy idea it was that we needed another John McClane movie. Um, and the first PG-13. first PG-13 John McClane movie. Um... Directed by Len Wiseman, who had just who'd done a couple of the Underworld movies, and yep. that's what he got most of his notoriety for. Uh, um, which I've never seen any of those. The only good one is the first one. Yeah, I agree. Um, and then he directed his wife in those and in Total Recall. Oh, uh, was Total Recall before this? No, no, no. Total Recall is the one thing he's directed since then. Okay, okay. I yeah. thought I was like Total Recall was two thousand twelve. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Which 
you can give me Kate Beckinsale shooting automatic weapons and talking with her British accent every day of my life, and I will never stop watching it. Yeah. That and Jessica Peel's really attractive too. So she can't act very well, but at least she looks good. The the moment in Total Recall where for the for the first you know ten or fifteen minutes of the movie she's talking in her American accent, which is what a lot of people like. That's what I was used to from the Underworld movies because for whatever reason they had her talk with an American accent in those, didn't they? No, she she's got a British accent. Does she? Yeah. Well, I had seen her in other movies where she had an American accent. That is what I most knew her for. Apparently, I didn't watch Underworld close enough. That woman. That woman. But. The moment that it's found out that she's a spy and she immediately slips into her British accent without missing a beat, like l- almost in the middle of dialogue, goes from doop to British accent. I was just like, oh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I got you. Uh, so, yeah. So, Len Wiseman uh, directed the first 200 world films, directed this, and then did Total Recall, and that's really all he's done. He's produced every underworld film since then, but uh, hasn't directed any more of them. Um, We got so lucky that after after how awesome the third movie was, having no holiday ties, this time we had to bring it back to the 4th of July. Of course. Uh, I do believe it was a summer movie release, like the end of June, like June 30th or something, like right before July 4th. So, of course, they felt the need to tie it into the July 4th holiday. Well, and you've got all these awesome actors. you got Kevin Smith and Justin Long and Mary Stewart. um, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Maggie Q. Sung Kang, I don't know who that is. That's Han from the Fast and the Fur- or Fast and Furious franchise. Got it, got it, got it. And then you've got the always awesome, never dull Timothy Oliphant, which is the only saving grace for this movie. Timothy Oliphantastic. Huh? Timothy Oliphantastic. Yes, yes. Um, I will say that I I always find Maggie Q really attractive, but I never find her entertaining. Really, mm. I um, find her. I never watch her acting and go, wow. She- She's so good. No. Uh, I find her very attractive. She's very attractive. Um, and, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Oh. It's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely gorgeous. Now, here's where I'm going to differ with you on this. While I do absolutely love Timothy Oliphant, uh, Go is one of my favorite movies of all time, and Scream 2, he's amazing in both of those. I don't think he's good in this movie. I think he is garbage in this movie because he's, he's a, about he's the a movie, wannabe though. Bond villain. I don't care that he's a wannabe Bond villain. Like I said, he's the best thing about this movie. This whole movie is crap. It's no good whatsoever. We said, like we said, it's PG-13. They can't even give you yippee-ki-yay motherfucker line. They have to yippee-ki-yay mother yep. with a gunshot. Yep. They, uh, the, there's a scene where because he's such an awesome hacker, Timothy Oliphant and his team, uh, that they convince a Harrier jet to shoot at, um, at John McClane. And literally, John McClane goes up like an exit ramp. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like it never goes anywhere. <laughs> it just keeps going higher and higher. And you're just like, nobody builds a on-ramp that does that for that long. No. And then on top of that, like, the whole sequence of like he blows a. They also took the guy from um, District B thirteen, the um, the parkour guy. Uh, the oh blonde, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's in this movie. Oh, is he? I don't even remember that. Yeah, and okay. he's 
He's a great action star. If you've oh, never yeah. seen District B13, go out and see it. It's a French movie. They tried to remake it um, called The Blocks. No, uh, Brick Mansion. Brick Mansions. With Paul Walker. With, uh, with, with Paul Walker. Yeah. Um, but the original version is uh, was written and produced by Luc Besson. Luc Besson, yep. And he is he he's he reminds me of like the French version of George Lucas. Like oh yeah. He's got really good ideas, but nobody like and 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 like other people can execute it better than he can because I I like some of his movies. Sure. But I only like two or three of them, and he's made a whole bunch of them. And yeah. So oh, anyway, and um, you, you know me, like I really love European cinema. I, I watch a lot of like uh, Scandinavian films, and like I watch a lot of Luc Besson stuff. When they when when Hollywood tries to remake them, they always get whoever's hot to like rewrite it and make it an American version of it. When they remake Luc Besson movies, they just pay Luc Besson to write the crappy American version of his own movie. Like I don't understand like. As as an intellectual property that you have written, like Taxi or Brick Mansion, well, not, uh, uh, Attack the or District B, District B thirteen, uh, like he 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 was the writer on the American versions of those, and they're just so bad. Like I don't understand how he could take his own intellectual property and rewrite it into garbage. Which is weird because you know he, the professional's fantastic. Sure, I don't like Leon as much as the professional. We've talked about that in the past. Yep. Um, Fifth Element is a really fun movie. It's not great, but it's fun. Sure. Um, but you've got and, like La Femme Nikita that got remade as uh, Point, Point of, of No Return. Return. Which I actually like the Point of No Return. Like, but I never okay. saw La Femme Nikita before I ever saw Point of No Return. So like, and I, and I don't, I don't dislike Point of No Return, but it's just like. Personally, I consider it subpar, but it, it still was an okay remake. I like Cheke Cario a lot. So and 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 Bridget Fonda was awesome in that movie. Yeah. Like so um, the French one was just so like more graphic and like more mentally disturbing. I agree. Um but yeah, so you wanna be Bond villain and now you have a we talked about <laughs> how like the um the whole purpose of them, the reason why nobody can find out where Timothy Oliphant and his crew are is because they're in the back of an 18-wheeler. Yep. Always mobile. Yep. And they're always mobile. And then isn't that the isn't that the truck that he steals and he's driving up the Yeah, that's thing? the one that he's driving up that thing while the Harrier jet or whatever it is is shooting like the jet that can just like float in air and not have to like worry about anything. That he yep. ends up, I think he jumps out of the 18 wheeler to jump onto that jet at some point. Oh, dude. It's, it, yeah. Oh. oh. And it then was, he blows the helicopter by throwing a, a car at it. Oh. And then we, then we get the great line of, you just blew up a helicopter with a car. I was out of bullets. Oh, my God. Oh. Dude, like, so here he is driving this, this uh, taxi cab as fast as he can to this booth so it'll tra- change the trajectory of the car so it'll go up in the air and blow up this helicopter and so he's probably doing like 60 70 miles an hour towards this thing that he's gonna smash into and he just jumps out the car and he rolls and he slams into a parked vehicle and he's okay like this 
they literally started making Die Hard after the, the this fourth one and the fifth one. They started making him superhuman. They started doing like almost like cartoonish ridiculousness with his yeah. character yeah. Uh, to the point where it's 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 like it's like jumping the shark, but even worse to me because sure. because at least. You used to have this everyday man, John McClane. Like when you watch those first three movies, like he gets his ass kicked and he's hurting yep. through most of the movie. And he's like most of the time, yeah. If you ever, <laughs> there's some really good sequences on YouTube. I can't remember what they're called right now. I might look them up for you later. All right. It, um, where like if you did this in real life, uh-huh. how many times you would be dead? <laughs> and it's like they did Home Alone. And they were like all the things that happened to the two wet bandits in Home Alone, and it's like a kill count. And it's yep. like they would have died like thirty or forty times. I've seen that video. And and they and they did the same thing with Die Hard and Die Hard Two and Three. Oh and wow! Like how many times? Or like you'd have a such a severe concussion from the from the mental like smashing your head through this or whatever. So it's they're kind of fun. I'll try to look them up for us later. Cool. Did, um, are you the one that sent me the video of like if Fast and the Furious was real? Oh I can't I don't think I did. Okay. Somebody name. somebody recently sent me like a, a YouTube video. It's all animation, but it's like if Fast and the Furious was real. And so like it shows the rock and the chick get, getting blown out of the building at the beginning of like the seventh movie or whatever. And then, yeah. like, he wraps her up, and then they, like, smash into the car. And then, like, the animation, like, shows both of them with, like, all kinds of pieces of the car through their bodies and whatnot. And they were like, mm, that didn't work out right. Uh, probably probably going to die. Uh, not not doing so well. Uh, no, that was not me. I did not show you that yeah, one. Yeah, I, I can't remember who sent that to me, but it was hilarious. I'll, I'll try and you, find it. And you pass keep it along. going back for Live Free or Die Hard. I'm going to see if I can figure out this uh, death count. Gotcha. Uh, so um, I I have a small soft spot for the movie. Like I uh, mentioned earlier, I just watched it today because it's the one that I hadn't seen most recently. Um, I am a huge Kevin Smith fan. That's absolutely no like secret to anybody. Um, I really enjoyed having him be in this movie. This that was probably the only really real redeeming part for me. Um, and it's just because he plays such a neurotic character that I could, that I believed him as a hacker. I believed him as the dude that lived in his mom's basement that had this whole computer set up that was like paranoid about everything. And while it's very hard to not see Kevin Smith in that role, or I mean, it's like when you, when you look at that role, it's hard to not see Kevin Smith uh, being Kevin Smith, excuse me. But I think he did a really good job of like taking the character over the top being even louder than Kevin Smith normally is playing like a glorified persona version of himself uh, that actually knew computer hacking and stuff like that. Um, it, you can, you can search on YouTube, Kevin Smith talking about his time working on live free or die hard uh, his time, like working with Bruce Willis in that scene. What's up, Jason. Okay. So I found it. It's called yeah. honest action and it's done by screen junkies. Oh, cool! I'm a big fan and, of Screen uh, Junkies. Yeah, so like it's it's a it's a lot of fun. They do multiple movies. Home Alone and Die Hard are the ones that I found very easily. Uh, so uh, if you have the time, you're ever on a YouTube kick, just want to waste some time, have fun with that. Honest, um, what did I say? Honest, Honest action, action from Screen Junkies. Nice. So. 
I'm sure at some point, because I like Scream Junkies, that Home Alone thing, I'm sure I did a Home Alone search and that it put two and two together and told me to watch that video, and I did I did find it hilarious. Uh, their stuff is animated, correct? They have, like, an animated body, like, in the corner. Okay. And, like, showing you the multi- – like, they had the doctor watch these movies, and they're like, where where would this – where would sure. this affect this person? And so, so like, like a, for, for the Home Alone one, like, when they got hit with something, it pops up, like, dialogue on screen that tells you what that actually would have caused in real life. Correct. Yeah. And then, okay. like, like, on that little body in the corner, it's like, if it was it a head shows you, yeah. you like red up here, it's like an entire blue body animated thing. And like, yeah. Yeah, I've seen the Home Alone one, and it is absolutely hilarious, especially when it gets to when they actually get into the house yeah. and stuff. Yep. Yeah, absolutely crazy. Uh, so like I was saying, really, really enjoyed the fact that Kevin Smith was a part of this movie. It doesn't make it a good movie in any way, but the warlock sequence I did really enjoy. Um, I watching it today, I I can't blame Justin Long for how bad the movie is, but he, I feel like, I feel like he did a great job of acting in this movie. And I know it's like a, a, a garbage, like action one, like wannabe action movie, but I, I felt like every time that he delivered his hacker dialogue or acted like, you know, this is what's going on. Like, this is why you guys should listen to me. I like, felt like he actually brought something to his character. Um, most of the other characters are pretty one-dimensional in this movie. There's not really a lot of... I, I mean, Thomas Gabriel is not a badly acted character. It's just a very poorly constructed villain. Like, Absolutely. if Timothy Oliphant was cast as as a different villain in this movie and and the villain had a better plan i probably would have really liked this movie more but that's just guessing um but they wasted a lot of talent were you in massachusetts when this came out did you watch this with me i don't think so no i was only in massachusetts in 2006 Okay. Yeah, uh, I was in Massachusetts the summer of 06. To Maybe David of... came to see this with me. I remember somebody coming with Letha and I to watch this movie. Yeah, so. uh, I don't I, I sh- I'm pretty sure I was still back in the Midwest when this came out, but I don't remember where. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, they eventually find out that Thomas Gabriel worked for the government. They eventually find out that he wrote hacker stuff while he was with the government and basically when certain things happened everybody's credit and financial information got downloaded to this server that he designed so of course he does all the things that make it so that everybody's information gets downloaded there so that he can go steal it from there and all um, the crap he was doing was just to scare everybody to so scare they wouldn't everybody yep because he knew that like certain things had to happen in order for this information dump to happen to the one site. So he was basically creating a bunch of panic and ridiculousness and doing stupid stuff as as his ruse, because every diehard villain has to have a ruse. Um, and, you know, of course, John McClane is the cop. Because So, I mean, we haven't even addressed this fact yet. Uh, Thomas Gabriel is in Washington, D.C., uh, his people are eliminating all of these hackers that they've hired to do all this hacking for them. His people end up in New York City, uh, showing up at Justin Long's apartment at the exact same moment that John McClane is called by, well, by his bosses, because the FBI has sent all of their people on vacation. They have nobody to escort this kid 
uh, hacker down to Washington, D.C. So let's just call a local NYPD cop to come do it for us. And that cop just happens to be John McClane, who just Ooh. happens to show up at Justin Long's apartment at the exact moment that these terrorists are trying to kill him. And that starts off their relationship where they then go on the run from Thomas Gabriel's people on their way to travel back down to Washington, D.C. Which, yeah, there's a lot going on in this movie is pretty much garbage. Um, there, John McClane gets to be the hero in the end because during one of the end of battles, he gets shot in the shoulder. So he's obviously got a bullet hole wound that goes through his shoulder so when uh, Thomas Gabriel grabs him and tries to hold him hostage, all Bruce Willis does is take his gun, put it through his own shoulder to shoot and kill Thomas Gabriel behind him. Wow. What a, what a climactic ending there where you're shooting through yourself to kill the bad guy. Yeah. But that's how tough John McClane is. He can take two bullets through his shoulder. And then, he, and then he's perfectly fine to go to Russia. Yeah. I don't know how much time passed. It was another six years in real time before we got to a good day to die hard, which has an absolutely terrible cast of people. Uh, how Jay Courtney, don't get me wrong. You know what's weird is I don't mind a, him as an actor. Really? I thought you hated him. I just find him annoying. And he just keeps picking the wrong movies. Like he's just he's he's always this little like this little bitch in a, in all these movies. And I always feel like he's I don't know like I feel like he could probably do some acting if he could ever get the opportunity to do some real acting, but he never does. I don't know. The only movie I've ever not hated him in that I can think of off the top of my head was Suicide Squad. I didn't mind him in Terminator. When he played Reese. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I mean, like, that whole movie's blah anyway. So looking for a bright spot, it was kind of easy to yeah. see him as the bright spot. He so. wasn't terrible in that movie. Uh, but this is the movie that we got all this hodgeback. Uh, he played one of the military dudes in this movie. Uh, I don't really remember where he is at in the movie, but I remember being excited to see him and see him back. Uh, Cole Hauser is in this movie. That's one of our other big names that we've got. Um, there was a lot of European actors in this one, people that I didn't recognize from anything. They probably um, had to film it all in Europe, in Russia and Europe just so that they could make it actually make the movie. Sure. Uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is back for, uh, you know, an opening scene where she gets to play his daughter again. She drops him off to the say, airport. Yeah. Just really quick at the beginning. I thought. Yep. Uh, and then I think they get on the phone with her at the end after they survive. I think I mean, you're right. I think they call her a song. I can't remember, but I feel like uh, a minute or two of her at the beginning of the movie dropping him off at the airport, and then I feel like there's like a phone call or something at the very end of the movie. Only um, seen it once. Yeah, I've, I've only seen it once also. Uh, this one was directed by a guy named John Moore. Uh, the film that he directed, he directed a, a couple of okay movies and some garbage as well, but he did Behind Enemy Lines, which I thought was a really good movie, the Jude Law Sniper film. Uh, I really enjoy that. And then Flight of the Phoenix. That's that's Beyond the Gates. Oh, enemy Lines is the Owen Wilson. The Owen Wilson one. Oh, so never mind. This guy's done a bunch of garbage. Um, <laughs> Behind Enemy Lines, the Owen Wilson, Owen Wilson film is garbage. Uh, Flight of the Phoenix was okay. I didn't hate it, but I also didn't think it was that exciting. He did the Omen remake, and he did Max Payne, which were both garbage. 
Um, and then he did two films after wait, wait, wait. this one. Go. He did the Omen remake. The Omen remake. And you don't love this man? No, no. Why would I love this? What's well, in the Omen remake that I should love? <laughs> Julia Stiles, obviously. Like, oh, was she really? Maybe I need to give that movie she another was go. The mom. She's the main character. Maybe I need to be watching The Omen tomorrow. I didn't realize that. <laughs> Apparently, that couldn't even save this movie for me. Oh, man, that movie is so bad. It's terrible. It was dumb, and I literally didn't remember Julia Stiles was in it. But She's now I might give it another go. Mom. She's the mom. You don't need to give it another no, go. No, I don't really. I was, yeah. Uh, he did two films after this that I've never heard of. I don't know if you're looking them up, but yeah, they're, I've never I heard did. of them. Never heard um, of them. So, once again, we decide to go to the John McClane is the fish out of water storyline. And John McClane goes off to Russia because he finds out that his son is in jail in Russia. But what he doesn't know is that his son works for the CIA, maybe? Yeah, I think it was the CIA. Yeah, I think he works for the CIA. And he's undercover. And he's trying to infiltrate some Russian mafia mob boss guy. And he's friends with some of the people that work for this Russian mob boss mafia guy. And he's this close to getting one of them to turn on his boss. And then they get arrested. And then while they're in prison, he convinces this guy to, to, to go against his Russian mob boss guy. But before he can get all the answers he needs from this guy, they get uh, taken to, like, in front of a judge to, like get their initial like pre-trial stuff or whatever. And at that moment, the Russian mob boss guy decides to blow up the courtroom and somehow a hole gets blown in the wall of the courtroom so that Jay Courtney and his little buddy can sneak out this wall. And then John McClain just happens to be sitting outside this courthouse in a vehicle when his son runs into the street and runs into the front of his car. Because that's how convenient John McClane's life is. He's always in the right place slash wrong place at the right slash wrong time. <laughs> Do we even need to talk about the rest of this movie? There's literally a point in time where there's so many bad guys who keep running into the exact... Like, John McClane has a machine gun. He's pointing it in one direction. And all these bad guys just keep running right into his machine gun line of fire. Like it makes like, and not like he's going like this. He's not sweeping. No, he's literally just going in one spot. And these bad guys just keep funneling right in front of him. And it's one of those moments where it hurts my brain as a moviegoer, as a fan of film that somebody can't even come up with a good reason as to why they have to funnel towards him or the fact that he should be picking and choosing his spots and having to change direction to try and save his son. It, oh, this movie's so bad. So bad on so many levels, on every level. It it, it, it literally becomes like they, they should have just called the movie like jumping from safe house to safe house. Like oh. they go to one safe house, but then bad guys show up. So this one's not safe. What's that? They've been compromised. Yeah. So we got to go to a different safe house. And then bad guys show up there. So we got to go to this other safe house. And then we get to a safe house. And we've got friends that we've we've been working with these guys for the last couple of years. Like, we can trust these guys. Well, no, you can't. Because it turns out that the chick that you've got the hots for in this movie, like, she's the daughter of this, like, Russian mob boss guy. And she's been undercover infiltrating you guys. 
And mm. then they narrowly escape her and her henchmen, only to find out that uh, suddenly everybody finds out the location of where this like flash drive is that's supposed to have all this like damning information on it or whatever. So they go to this location where supposedly the safe deposit box is or whatever for this. In Chernobyl. In Chernobyl. Turns out there's no information against the bad guy. This was just all uh, another ruse. And what we have here is a uh, bomb shelter, a Chernobyl vault that has a billion dollars worth of uranium in it. And that's what they were after this entire time was finding the location of this bomb vault where somebody made up the lie that there was a flash drive there or something like, Oh my God, dude, this movie is just stupid. And then it doesn't even end there while they're there. Then all of a sudden there's more fights and battles and helicopters shooting at, you know, the vault with uranium in it. And why wouldn't you? And then at one point when she runs out of bullets, because apparently this, this movie decided to take helicopters that seriously that eventually they run out of bullets. So she then decides to fly her helicopter into the airplane hangar or whatever that the McLeans were in. I don't even think it, I think I thought it was like a hotel or something. Was, oh yeah. Okay. I thought it was just some like giant building that like, eh. yeah, I thought it was like a hotel. And so anyway, remember. she decides to fly her helicopter into that. And uh, just instead of admitting defeat and going back to, I don't know, pull a Simon Gruber on them. She just decides she's going to kill herself instead. And the McLeans basically just walk out of the building all fine. And you know, no big deal. Yeah, this movie was pretty much garbage. Booty garbage. I I don't I I can't think of any redeeming factor about the entire movie. I I remember oh. there being a really hot woman on a motorcycle at one point. Hmm. I think it's the girl who flies the helicopter. Maybe. Gotcha. But yeah, because yeah, for for a little while they try to make you think she's on the good guy's side. Yeah, she's in a cat suit and she's riding a motorcycle and then she like it was in the trailer too mm-hmm. or like she gets off this motorcycle and then she like unzips and she's wearing like a bikini or something that oh. she has to get like she takes off the cat suit to get into a different outfit or something gotcha they made it a point to be like i'm gonna shoot your chesticles while you're taking this off because that's not you know anything but what horny 17 to 25 year olds want to see in a movie Oh, so those are the five movies, the three, two good ones, one okay one, and two pieces of garbage. Uh, so you and I, Steve Wilhammer and Dave Sibley, all got the order correct. All of us <laughs> said, number one's the best, number three is the second best, number two is is in the middle, and then four and then five round out these, I guess... And the, the, the problem is, is like four and five are basically interchangeable because they're both terrible. But oh, yeah. I can at least find a little bit of enjoyment with Timothy Oliphant and Kevin Smith and Justin Long in that third movie. Like they they at least did an attempt at this terrible screenplay that they had to work with. Um, my friend Nick Hall had a little bit different take. Uh, one and three, he has the same as us, but then he has four and two switched. And I didn't see any justification for why he liked four more than two. Um, well, so does Eric. Uh, he, oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, Eric and Eric and Nick and Eric. Nick and Eric both both had uh, four before two. I 
Again, neither one of them gave justification. I can only assume that they just hated how much number two was a rehash of the first movie. And at least number four did something a little bit different. Uh, But, I mean, five is garbage. Uh, Our friend Snow was the most confusing one. Uh, Well, not really, I guess. But he put the third film, Die Hard with a Vengeance, as his favorite. Followed by the original. And I just have trouble with that. I don't... I don't... I mm, I just don't see number three... Like, number three has a lot of really good qualities to it. But it just... Like, you can't even have number three without number one. Like, literally, Simon Gruber's plan doesn't make sense if you haven't seen the... If, if the first movie wasn't there first. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't matter. It's not, I like Aliens better than I like Alien. Not to say anything bad about Alien, but Aliens is a better movie. For All me. right, I see. I see where you're going with that. Well, it's not like Aliens could exist without Alien, but I still like Aliens better than Alien. So I totally get it. I mean, I think one of the reasons he marked down was because of Zeus, right? Like, yeah, he just Samuel L. that much in that movie, and that, that's fine. And, and that makes I sense. I don't. I don't personally see how anybody would like one less than three. Right on a, on a personal level, but I mean, like, if that's what you like, I mean, you also got to think about when Snow probably saw that. Maybe it was around the same time Bad Boys came out. Maybe he saw three before he ever saw one. Um, so, like, yeah, so you have the possibility of him being, uh, it might be like that childish memory, childhood memory of seeing the third one first, and he thought sure. that. Was uh, but that's, then, what Michael, that's what your friend Michael Barsky does. Like well, he would, he would. <laughs> I, I mean, First, I want to say that Snow's back half is 425, like Nick and, and, and Eric. So for some reason, he liked four better than two also, which that's got to be the Kevin Smith, Justin Long, Timothy Oliphant thing. Like those yeah. are the only redeemable things about four. And, and I just personally can't, I don't think it's a good plot of a movie that that acting by three people that I like can make it better than the second movie. Like, I agree. The, the plot of the second movie, despite being a rehash of the first one, is still a far better plot, in my opinion, than the hacker plot with the with the wannabe Bond villain. Like, I just can't get behind that as a good plot for a movie. Mm-hmm. I think I wrote Michael Barsky's down wrong on our script. I think his comment was one, two, three. I thought he was two, three. Was he? Did I have it down right? Well, I I wrote that I can't be mad about him saying one, two, three are all that matter if it's three, two, one. Because well, no, no, he said he doesn't care about four or five. Right. And that was so. But I'm pretty sure. Let's pull up Shane talks here. Like for some reason, when I was writing the script, I thought it was one, two, three, like in the order they came out. And I just I couldn't be upset with his logic of the order they were released. They got progressively worse, even though I really enjoy three. All right, here we go. What's here it, we what go. is his uh, exact comment? Let me pull it up. <laughs> Mark Stratton has one, two, three. Then the rest are trash. Can't complain with him having that apparent. No, oh, how did? Yeah, uh, awkward. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I apparently forgot to include Marks on my list. 
Chris Schneider is three one two four five, and it, like three one it, two like, four three one two. And, and 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 Chris even said, "I said I don't know how you can call uh, how you do this." And he says, "It's a personal thing. I know in the overall number one is superior, but three is I have a sentimental connection to." Okay. Um, but and I can't again, argue that there's plenty of movies that I have sentimental connections to that I rank higher than anybody else does. But if you asked me what my favorite Star Wars movie is compared to the best Star Wars movie, my favorite is always A New Hope, but the best movie is Empire Strikes Back. Like, I'm willing to make that distinction. And so, like, my question to everybody was rank the Die Hard series from best to worst. Okay. Using only one through five. So, um, I feel like more people took that as a personal favorite one through five instead of actually logically thinking about which ones were the best to worst. Yes. I think people just put it in their in their preferential order. Michael Barsky has two, three, then one. Okay, no. well what? I am very upset at that thing. I don't, I don't know what and I And then he responded that four and five are unbreakable sequels, which he is totally right because that's pretty funny. John McClane's complete superhero in those movies. Uh uh, he says two is not a good movie. Just the one that I had on VHS first and watched constantly. So okay. once again, going for a personal, personal preference, preference. the best one. So, uh, yeah. so Shiloh, I have him down doing one, two, three, four, five. Um, really acceptable. Yeah, that's fine. Like they progressively got worse, but it, again, personally, I think the third one was far better. Uh, Yotter, uh has one three as his first ones. Totally fine with that. Then he goes four two. Again, somebody else says, that puts I, four above two. And then he has. I never saw five, but two is so boring that I can't imagine five being any worse. I'll take a dumb fun movie over a boring forgettable movie any day. And then you and I totally agreed that five is a lot worse. Oh yeah, five is five is five is unforgivably worse in this franchise like absolutely i'm sure they're inevitably gonna do a sixth one they're gonna like they're gonna make bruce willis be like harrison ford and do these movies that he doesn't want to do because they're gonna make money if they make a sixth one yeah i mean they're making another lethal weapon in theory so i i don't know why i need an 80 year old uh running around yeah sorry yeah yeah. Uh, 70 rigs yeah, uh, and then the last note that I got written down was uh, Mike Owens. Uh, Big Mike put one, two, three, four, five. Which, again, I'm fine with that also. But personally, I just think three is is far superior to two. Yeah. Um, and and you know, if you're going off a of personal preference compared to best, I still I can see where some people have these ideas. But for the most part, sure. like um, as far as best, sorry, you and I are right. Everybody we are wrong. Yep. Uh, us and Steve Wilhammer and Dave Sibley, we win the award for being right about yep. putting the Die Hard movies in order of best, best quality, best script, best execution, best-ish acting as you can get from a horror, from an action movie. Um, yeah, it goes one, three, two, four, five for the Die Hard franchise. Well, that wraps up everything I got to talk about for the Die Hard franchise. Do you got anything else? No. Uh, my only other question for you would be, do you consider Die Hard to be Bruce Willis's best action movie? Absolutely. Think so? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, like he he he's made plenty of other action movies, but like this put him on the map. This sure. put, like I said, this is probably the best action movie of all time. So I can't I can't fathom thinking anybody that he could even top himself. So I definitely uh, will agree with that statement. Uh, so that was us talking a lot about the Die Hard franchise. As I said about at the top of the episode, I highly recommend the Netflix documentary, The Movies That Made Us, uh, the Die Hard episode. It goes into a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff about how the film was financed, how the film got written, how the film got made, uh, all the people that they... Like, Bruce Willis was like 20-something-ith that they reached out to. There was a lot of people that were turning the movie down. Arnold Schwarzenegger was uh, was supposed to, or was contacted about doing the movie, and he turned it down to do, like... Um, oh, crap, what was it? It was a comedy that he turned it down for. Last Action Hero? No, because that was oh, five years oh, later. Was that Twins? Uh, I think it might have been Twins, yeah, because Twins was like 89, I think. So, yeah, he turned it down to do Twins instead. Um, but, yeah, so they, they go in. That, that hour-long episode or 45-minute-long episode goes into a lot of great behind-the-scenes stuff. You get to see a lot of the sets that they built and, like, how they did a lot of their stunts. Well, really, and- really worth your time. If you if you look at that too, like you needed, it's kind of weird because I love the 1980s mm-hmm. action, films, right? Like, grew up watching Sly Stallone and Arnold running around and killing everybody in all sorts of different imaginable ways. Um, so that that's something from my childhood that I truly cherish and think sure. is awesome. Um, I'm excited that at some point I'm going to be able to show Predator to my kids and be like watching it with my teenage boys and being like, isn't this so cool? Yes. And, uh, even though and it's Predator so much- holds up. Well, and it does, but so, but you hit Bruce Willis getting this job yep. and getting this character is literally like the beginning of the end of the super muscle superstar for action films. Well, and even the funny thing is, is Bruce Willis even technically turned it down the first time it was offered to him when they finally decided to offer it to him because this shooting schedule conflicted with moonlighting. And then the only reason he was able to do it is because Sybil Shepard got pregnant. So the moonlighting filming schedule got pushed back 12 weeks or something like that to accommodate her. And then all of a sudden he was like, okay, guys, uh, I am now open. If, If you can film the movie in these dates, I can do it. And, and that's how he actually ended up being able to make the movie. Like, Stars had to align to be able to get Bruce Willis into this film because Moonlighting was his only real credit that he had on his resume. Well, and, and to think about it, right? Like he's he was like before this movie, all he was known for was his comedic acting. Mm-hmm. He wasn't yep. known as an action star, so they took a chance on him there. But then, ever since then, it's hard for him to even get back into comedy. Like he every time he tries. It doesn't always work out well. Yeah, cop out was garbage. Uh, and like Hudson Hawk. I personally like Hudson Hawk. I do too. I, it's a very quirky movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it got critically panned. It did. And it was a big old box office bomb. Um, and then you look at something like with how funny he is in like his Friends episode arcs. Yep. Like those three or four episodes he's in. Yep. It's hilarious. He is funny, and he's got good timing. And it just—it's one of those things where it, 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 it's really weird how 
quickly Hollywood can be like, oh, you can't do this anymore or you can't do that anymore or you're never allowed to do this because all we know of you is an action star or sure. a comedic star or whatever. So, Well, and it was really weird because here in the late 80s when they did the first Die Hard, that was the point where Stallone and Schwarzenegger were all looking to do comedies. Like, Absolutely. Like, yeah, they were trying to get out of the action sequence. Yep. I mean, that's when we got stuff like Kindergarten Cop, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, and Last, Last Action Hero, and like all these things where they were in uh, twins, like you said, like, like Stallone and, and Schwarzenegger were like early nineties. They were trying to do all these fairly bad comedies. Some of them are enjoyable to an extent, but they're not Oscar. like You've never seen Oscar. Take the time to watch Oscar. So, good. Oh yeah. That's actually something I haven't seen. So I will definitely have to, yeah, have Stallone, to watch that. I Stallone seen it. as a mob boss in like the thirties or the forties or something like that. And he's a, and he's trying to, he decides to try and uh, he, his dad's last wish to him as he's dying is that he wants his son to go legitimate, and mm. and so Oscar um, is the main character is Sylvester Stallone, and it's him being a mob boss trying to become a straight and narrow businessman, and he's trying to. And this whole movie takes place in like one, like basically almost all of it takes place in his mansion in the middle of New York, and um, and it it's a very silly comedy. Did Stallone and, write and direct this one also? Thinks so. I, I think he wrote it. I don't know if he directed okay. it, but like Marissa Tomei's in it, and like there's a ton of people. Chaz Palminteri's in it. Oh, the nice. First I remember Chaz Palminteri being in. Um, but yeah, like it, it's it's one of those movies, and every time I catch it, I I I crack up, man. It's it's top notch. It's good comedy. It's one of those ones that like every time I see anything about it, I'm always like, oh man, like I I still haven't seen that. I've heard good things about it. And now you bringing it up, like, I, I need to make time to watch it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, would you, based on Die Hard and his other action movies, would you say Bruce Willis is the top action hero? No. No? Who would you put that category Arnold. to? Arnold. Always. So, and that's just personal preference one more, one more sure. time. Sure. Yeah, and that's, that's what I was asking you for. So, like, Predator and Terminator, T2... Uh, Commando. Commando. Uh, did, uh, you got Red Heat. Uh, like, um, yeah, dude. Like, there's so many. Uh, uh, Total Recall, Running oh, yeah. Man. Yep. Uh, do you do you include like Conan the Barbarian or the Conan oh, films in there? Hell yeah! Yep. Like Red Sonia. <laughs> well, he, like Red Sonia is kind of like he he's not in that a whole lot, right? Um, but yeah, I, I seriously, like, he's always going to be my action star, nice. like from, from when I'm a kid anyway, sure. like, um, you know, the, I, I can't remember if I've brought it up before, but my brother Dave says there's three things that make a good movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger has to be in it. You got to show boobs and there must be an explosion. If you get those three things in one movie, you've got an A plus from him. <laughs> um, I won't, I won't go that far because I didn't care for a racer. Uh, or the sixth day, or uh, or uh, end of days is one of those ones I keep going back and forth on. Like I like the thought about it, and I thought he did well in it, but I don't think the movie's a good movie. So Not. like, it, but like I actually think he's he does some decent acting in the movie. I just think the movie's bad. Was uh, was Eraser his first go back to like a serious action movie? Because that no, would have been like ninety six. No, uh, yeah, no, he was he he uh, 
Oh man, what was the? I can't remember why he took a break, but it was after Terminator, and then he did Eraser. But it was there was a huge gap there. Yeah, I can't remember why there's a gap there. Well, compared he, to what, he was the way doing, he had working in Hollywood, right? He was doing Last Action Hero, and he was doing Twins, and he was doing all of his comedies there. But like, I feel like, I feel like Eraser was his first like going back to like the action genre and not like an action comedy like last action hero but like a legit action movie i think eraser was the oh, first like because he did true lies too oh okay you're right okay maybe true lies was it yeah well because like so you got so he did okay let's look at this list here real quick i'm gonna start in um we'll start in 80 with with his uh point on the barbarian because everything before then was just kind of uh Mm-hmm. He did Conan the Barbarian, he did Conan the Destroyer, then he did Terminator, Red Sonja, Commando, Raw Deal, Predator, Running Man, Red Heat, then he did Twins. Okay. So, so from, from, so from like, Red like, Heat. So Red Heat, then, then he did Twins, then he went back to Total Recall. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. And he went to Kindergarten Comp. Okay. Then he went back to Terminator 2. Okay. So he went back to Action. Yep. Comes to the action comedy, last action hero, right after Terminator 2. Uh-huh. After that, he goes to True Lies, so he's back in action. Well, maybe he didn't take as big of a break as I thought. I thought he took... And Junior is his next movie, his his next comedy. He just did a really good job of doing action comedy, action comedy, it sounds like. I just never realized... And then he went to Eraser, then Jingle All the Way. <laughs> he literally did action comedy, action comedy through the 90s. And then he did Batman and Robin and, and End of Days, Sixth Day, Collateral Damage. This is where, like, everything has sucked. Yeah. Everything has pretty much, like, been a really bad movie after he did. See, I don't care for Junior. Junior was then just capitalized no. on twins. Yeah. So True Lies is literally the last great movie that he did. Because then he See, followed I'm a that. fan of Eraser. I really enjoy Eraser. Eraser's fine, but it's not a like it's it's okay, and and some of his young, some of his earlier stuff is just okay. But sure. Um, but yeah, it's definitely True Lies is the last like really solid uh, action movie. Because everything after that, the Terminators, Around the World in Eighty Days. Oh, I didn't uh, even know he was in that. I've never seen it. Uh, the Expendables, which was fun. I like Which that franchise. Like, but but it's not like he does anything special in any no. of them. Um, I will say The Last Stand, I remember you and I watching that and enjoying it for what it was, but yeah. it's a it's a B action comedy. Like it's an eighties B movie. So sure. and the same thing with Escape Plan, which is what he followed up with The Last Stand. Yeah, um, I really I really remember enjoying was. Escape Plan and I would like to go back and watch it again. Just uh, him and Stallone together I thought was really cool. Uh, and I remember it being a decent I remember it being a decent movie, but I also remember figuring out the twist like halfway through the movie. You and I yep. were like, "Do you think that this is who he is?" Oh yeah, that's who he is. Yeah, okay. And then you know, they escape. Spoilers, and and you find out who Arnold Schwarzenegger really is, and you're like, "Okay, we kind of saw that coming." And it's it's still amazing to me that they uh, that they still talk about the possibility of triplets. Where it's gonna oh, be him, Danny yeah, DeVito, yeah. and and uh, Eddie Murphy oh, was, was the thing. And then the other thing that always makes me laugh is the fact that they still talk about the fact that he might make the Legend of Conan, because like 
what are you thinking? Like, is it, Conan, isn't it called this, King Conan? Uh, this, uh, I just looked it up on upcoming projects. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. Like, okay. I got you. I, like, for some reason, I thought it was like, called King man, Conan. He was like Mr. Universe when he was being Conan. Like, yeah. Conan's not going to be the king at looking like Arnold looks like right now. Right. Like, happen. Not only that, but I doubt he can actually even move in the proper ways to even swing a sword anymore. I, so. I would highly doubt it also. I, the only way that would work is if it was something to the effect of Conan is so old and decrepit at this point that he needs to name his successor and like maybe he never had children or something. Or maybe his son is the rock. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, his son is the rock and his son Squire is Kevin Hart. <laughs> Why not, right? Why not? Sure. Like, because those two apparently can't make movies not together anymore. <laughs> uh, oh, man. So this was awesome. Thanks for going on that little side side adventure, talking about action movies and whatnot. I feel like that's kind of how our conversations in real life go. We'll just go out on a tangent and go on for a while. So I kind of just felt like asking you some action questions here at the end. Uh, thank you for listening so far. Next week's episode, episode 31 uh, it's taking inspiration from Reggie Miller, and we are calling it Hollywood Boom Baby. We are going to talk about basketball movies, and movies that actually have to do with basketball, not movies that have one scene in them where people play basketball. Because if we did that, Consternate would have to be in that. We, yeah, we can throw Consternate in there, because there's there's a solid three-minute basketball scene in that movie where I have some sweet passes. Back pass. Yeah, baby. So yeah, we're we're doing movies where basketball is actually part of the plot of the movie, like a coach coaching a basketball team, or players who play on various basketball teams, or you know a main character who plays basketball. <laughs> Not oh, there's this one basketball scene at the end of Grown Ups, so we totally need to talk about all of Grown Ups that has nothing to do with basketball until they get to this final basketball game they're going to play. Like, like that, that was a pretty stressful day when I put that post up and, you know, 40-some people started listing off movies that had one basketball scene and thinking that it needed to be included. Um... I can't remember the one that Chris Schneider said that he put up there because somebody else asked about it. Um, oh, man, I'm drawing a blank on it. You don't know either? Okay. Uh, so anyway, we are going to talk about basketball uh, movies, things like The Way Back that I really love, or Love and Basketball, which is probably my favorite basketball movie ever. We, we'll touch a little bit on some documentaries. There's some Jordan documentaries, The Last Dance documentary. There's a documentary called The Heart of the Game that we might talk about. Uh, but m m what I'm really looking for is what basketball movies, plots do you care about? Things like Hoosiers or Space Jam or like movies that actually deal with the sport of basketball and not just a basketball scene. Because uh, we'd have to include Along Came Polly if, there, if one basketball scene mattered in a movie. Because that's like a super memorable basketball scene. Yeah. Philip Seymour Hoffman going right up on Ben Stiller. So anyway. Don't worry about it. It's not Ben. It, it wasn't. It was the guys. Him and Ben Stiller is playing with Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, it was gotcha. It was a different guy. Ah. 
shows you how well I know a long game poly. So yeah, so next week's episode is going to be about basketball movies. We'll probably either do the top 10, maybe some honorable mentions with that, but there's 30 or 35 movies on the poll right now for people to poll on uh, or vote on the poll. And yeah, so next week's basketball, and then uh, we're going to have to figure out where we go from there. Uh, we are supposed to do a co-podcast episode sometime here soon coming up. Uh, my buddy Jeff does a music podcast. So uh, we've decided we've been talking and trying to do a, uh, a collaborative podcast episode that him and two of his friends, are, the two people that he does his podcast with, are going to be on here with Jason and I uh, and our mutual friend Nick Joy, who knows Jeff. Uh, and we're going to talk about soundtracks. We felt like music podcast and a move, mainly movies podcast getting together. We should talk about some of our favorite soundtracks. Uh, I'm hoping to put that together to be episode 32, but I can't guarantee that it's going to work out that way. Uh, still waiting to get schedules all figured out and whatnot, but uh, that should be coming up sometime in the next couple weeks. Um, and then Jason and I are kicking around some other ideas, and we'll figure out a, we'll put out a game plan here pretty soon. But next week, talk about basketball, and we should have a good time. So thank you guys for listening this week. See you guys soon.